Hey there, Pwncasters. Today, we are going to do an episode on atrial fibrillation. So we got a bunch of rock star cardiologists in this building and all over the system. So why are we doing an AFib episode? Well, we deal with it every shift and we need to know the basics. Well, that's pretty easy in the ICU, right? You just throw them on Amio and a heparin drip and call it a day? Maybe get an EKG, but yeah, I think that's probably it. Yep, yep. That's it. What about if it's new onset AFib? A history of AFib? What's their anticoagulation risk? Do they have liver disease? Should we be going for rate control or rhythm control? Should we shock them? Okay, so that was a lot of questions. Maybe it's a bit more nuanced than just throwing them on Amio or a rate control agent. Let's start by talking about why this is important. I think the incidence is a great place to start. The incidence of AFib is as high as 78% in our critically ill patient population. And because of heterogeneity, it's way too difficult to nail down a hard and fast number. So not only is AFib really common in the ICU, but it's also really bad for you. So it's kind of a harbinger for badness with really high mortality rates. Harbinger. You like that word? It's a dangerous word. Having new onset AFib in critical illness increases your mortality risk from 22% to 44%. It's even a little worse in surgical ICUs. This is compared to the mortality rates without AFib, which is 16%. Now, of course, the skeptic in me needs to call out that language a little bit. We don't know if that's a correlation or a causative thing. But that said, at a minimum, this could be a marker of disease severity. So patients who develop AFib, there is badness going on. And whether the AFib is what is causing the badness or if it's just reflective of all the badness happening, AFib is still bad. It's something that we need to care about. So I think what Jeremy is saying, we should pay closer attention to our ICU patients who go into AFib. They're sending us a signal they are sick. Yeah. An electrical signal. Yeah. Ha! I've got AFib Batman images floating around in my brain. Claim joke alert. You know what I want to talk about? I want to talk about the physiology of what causes AFib in critically ill patients. All right, can I give it the Heisler version? No. Fine, go. Some sort of stressor in critical illness sparks atrial fibrillation. That is woefully inadequate, even for you. All right, let's try again. Some processes are thought to prime the heart for AFib. See, that's what I said. (laughs) Sort of. These processes are chronic things, right? Metabolic syndrome, hypertension, mitral valvular disease, age. There's also acute processes like inflammation and bacterial deposits in the endocardium, like in sepsis. Persistent tachycardia of any kind can prime the system for AFib. So the heart is primed for AFib, then what? Arrhythmogenic trigger occurs. Arrhythma what? Arrhythmogenic. Arrhythmogenic. Intrinsic triggers, shock, pain, anxiety, vent dyssynchrony. And we could also think of extrinsic arrhythmogenic triggers. Things like catecholamines, and this includes the pressors that you and I are going to be starting in the intensive care unit, but other metabolic things like uremia, hypomagnesemia, hypokalemia, even hyperkalemia, hypercapnia, the list goes on. Really, I break these things down into three separate causes. Changes in atrial architecture, so stretching them out for any reason. Changes in membrane potential, and this could be drugs or electrolytes, or anything that's going to increase sympathetic tone. 
Classic Jeremy saying a lot of physiology words, but that doesn't really tell me what makes AFib so dangerous. Why are we treating this more seriously than just regular old sinus tachycardia no one seems to care about? Uh, I always think it's interesting to think through this because if you're looking at patient A who has AFib and a heart rate of 170 and you're looking at patient B who has sinus tachycardia and a heart rate of 170, these patients are very different. And we need to start thinking about the sinus tach patient. The sinus tach patient, their heart is primed to be beating fast. And this means that they have, yes, increased chronotropy. That means their heart's beating fast. But also dromotropy, meaning the electrical signal can travel faster. And lucitropy, meaning the heart can relax faster. The entire heart is primed for this activity. In a patient with AFib, they don't have those things. You're literally working a horse that's not primed to work that hard. When a patient has AFib, there's all this electrical chaos going on, and you can have up to 700 impulses per minute. 700. Now, all of those aren't going to get through, but what happens is you lose atrial kick because you don't have a coordinated atrial contraction. So not only is your heart not primed for this rate, this fast activity, you lose about 20% of your ventricular filling from losing that atrial kick. So your cardiac output goes down both by way of losing that atrial kick and because your filling time goes to really nothing. So your stroke volume goes to nothing. And when your stroke volume goes to nothing, your cardiac output goes to nothing. Jeremy, that was beautiful. But I think you missed one major important point about atrial fibrillation. And what is that? Stroke risk? That's implied. No, I mean, everybody, mm. yeah, this is an educational podcast. We can go there. Yeah. So when it comes to stroke risk and atrial fibrillation, this dyssynchronous state of the heart, all these electrical impulses that aren't going through causes blood to actually pool in the atria. And this leads to clot formation after about 48 hours or so. And we don't like that. The biggest area that clots are forming is in the left atrial appendage. Little like, uh, just Google it. You'll understand what I'm saying. But you can develop blood clots and then you can throw microemboli into the brain, into the distal extremities, and cause strokes and that kind of stuff. And we don't really like that. Nope. So, what do we do about it? So when faced with AFib in the hospital or the ICU, you need to ask yourself some questions. First of all, is this patient stable or unstable? First and most important question. So then let's say they're unstable. So the hemodynamics have changed. The next question you're going to ask yourself is, are those hemodynamic changes related to atrial fibrillation or their previous critical illness? After you think about that, the next thing you have to think about is, can you fix the underlying trigger of AFib? The one thing that I want to comment on is that I know we make a big stink out of determining if a patient is stable or unstable. Sometimes this instability is obvious. Blood pressure low, patient obtunded, those are very clear cut and dry. But what about a patient who has new onset chest pain and skin modeling with a normal mental status? Is that stability or is that instability? What about a patient who was hypertensive and now has a softer blood pressure in the range of 90s over 50s, but a mean arterial pressure of 63 and isn't feeling very good? Is that strong enough evidence for you to need to cardiovert? And I think this is where the gray zone happens, where you have to use your own clinical judgment to figure out how unstable a patient needs to be before you have to pull out the electricity. Right. I completely agree with that. It's definitely a case-by-case -case judgment call. Those two patients you depicted there, both patients had a major change. Yes, their blood pressure is not 60 over 40. They're both very sick patients and patients that I would bring all this hopefully AFib knowledge you'll have by the end of this episode to bear and pick in real time which one's most important. 
So let's first spend some time on unstable AFib. So we started talking a little bit about this chicken and egg phenomenon that occurs when trying to figure out what actually caused their hypotension. And the answer here, while you're trying to figure out what caused what, is at the end of the day for me, if a patient has rapid atrial fibrillation and is unstable, yeah, you can try to figure out which one came first, the instability or the AFib, but you're going to have to move forward with electrical cardioversion. So yeah, while you're trying to figure that out, go ahead and pull out the pads and the Zoll and hook things up and get ready to shock. Yes, but how often are we doing that in the ICU? Should we be doing it more or less? Don't they need a TEE and anticoagulation if we cardiovert? So those are great questions. So just remember, synchronized cardioversion is still in every ACLS guideline, so it's considered safe to do without TEE or anticoagulation if it's a true emergency and your patient's unstable in the ICU or the patient's decompensating. I always think about it as, yes, there is a risk of stroke if you cardiovert and restore sinus rhythm, but I would much rather have the outcome be living with stroke than not living with no stroke. And I think that most people listening probably understand that acute emergency situation. But what about the patient who hasn't decompensated yet? That patient who we talked about earlier who looks a little bit borderline. I'd be in favor of trying medications while setting up to cardiovert and thinking through possible causes. So, but how are our cardiologist colleagues moving forward with cardioversions in these patients who are either borderline or who are actually stable? So all the data in atrial fibrillation, just so you know, and this is going to be a theme throughout the episode, is in stable patients. And they're a totally different animal. If you're talking about patients who have persistent AFib, chronic AFib with greater than 48 hours, all of those patients do need a TEE, transesophageal echo, before they undergo cardioversion because they are at high risk to have clots just sitting in their atria from prolonged stasis. These patients, even if you do a TEE that's normal, need anticoagulation for three to four weeks after you cardiovert them, per all the cardiology guidelines. After cardioversion, yep. after you restore sinus rhythm, why why do we do that? Why do we need to anticoagulate them for so long if, if the cardioversion successfully restored sinus rhythm from AFib? Because the atria can be stunned for one to two weeks post-cardioversion in cardiology studies, so the risk of embolic stroke is much higher over the first one to two weeks, and then it begins to taper off. Which is why you see the recommendation is three to four weeks. Wow, I never thought about the atria being stunned that long after cardioversion. That's something I'll have to look out for in the ICU. I guess we could say that you're stunned like (laughs) the atria. I would love to ultrasound a stunned atrial myocardium. That would be pretty cool. Next patient I shock, I'm doing that. So we've said we don't have time for a TEE in the critically ill most of the time. But what about starting anticoagulation? In an emergent setting, it's much more difficult to initiate anticoagulation and get a patient fully therapeutic by the time that we need to cardiovert them. All this talk about cardioversion, and we haven't mentioned if it's going to work or not. There's some signal from the review articles that we've researched so far for this episode that the likelihood of successful cardioversion is actually relatively low, and we'll put those references in the show notes for you. That's why most intensivists end up adding concomitant antiarrhythmic medications like amiodarone or digoxin while attempting synchronized cardioversion. And I think the idea here is that many of the reasons that our intensive care population end up in this rapid atrial fibrillation sort of arrhythmia is due to lots of underlying causes. And so, for example, if you have a patient who's in septic shock on norepinephrine and they have so many reasons to be in atrial fibrillation, if you try to cardiovert them out of that and you didn't do anything about the norepinephrine that's going in or the septic shock that's present, well, guess what? You might cardiovert them for a hot second and they'll go right back into it. 
Now that we've talked about our most unstable patients, the ones that we really, really, really care about in the acute setting, why don't we go back to the basics, our stable new onset AFib? For me, when I see a patient with stable new onset atrial fibrillation, I want to address some of the modifiable risk factors, at least in my hospitalized patients. So I think about, you know, my electrolytes. This is the old potassium of four and a magnesium of two. I want to think about addressing hypoxemia. And then I want to think about addressing a patient's volume status. And that includes both hyper and hypovolemia. So that means thinking about diuresing or giving fluids if it's indicated. So stable new onset AFib is thought to have an incidence of around 10%, and it does seem to happen a lot in hospitalized patients with no prior history of AFib, particularly in the ICU. I'm always asking myself, though, is this true new onset never occurred before atrial fibrillation, or is this just a patient who has paroxysmal AFib, meaning they have these paroxysms of the arrhythmia? It's here sometimes, and it's gone other times. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. Right. A patient with heart failure and volume overload certainly has have chronic AFib and haven't been symptomatic yet or had it captured on screening EKGs. Then essentially you just go back to the basic question. If they don't have a history of atrial fibrillation, think to yourself, what caused it and what can we do to address that? Some of the common causes we see in the ICU are sepsis, post-op cardiac surgery patients, endocrine causes like hyperthyroidism, and a respiratory failure, among many more. Certainly also the drugs we are required to use in the ICU can play a major role. Although it's usually pretty unclear if the drug caused the AFib or their underlying critical illness. Either way, we try to avoid some of the most common offenders. I think the worst one's probably dopamine. Ugh. Dopamine's the worst. Reach for everything else first in nearly every scenario. Hot take. I I think there's some scenarios where dopamine's kind Jeremy. of okay. Just saying, just saying. Devil's advocate. Why won't you get on our hate train here with us? Uh, because the hate train is not going to a place that I want to go. <laughs> Back to anticoagulation for a bit. Should we anticoagulate patients at all in the ICU with AFib? All the data that we have on anticoagulation for AFib is from the outpatient world at this point. But isn't the same disease? Uh, same disease, different place. Should we anticoagulate? The answer is no if they've had AFib for less than 48 hours. That's pretty clear in all the ICU AFib literature as well as in the cardiology guidelines too. Quick question for you. If you admit a patient to the intensive care unit and they present with atrial fibrillation, do you consider that to be less than 48 hours because it's your first look at the patient and they haven't been admitted for two days yet? Or do you assume that they have been in AFib for much longer than that prior to arrival? I think you can assess symptomology a little bit here and try to guess, but you have to know you're, you're taking a major guess and it's very possible they've been in AFib for potentially even a long time. Reading between the lines, you see a patient who's in AFib on presentation and you are leaning toward anticoagulating rather than not. I Question would. mark. I would, yeah. It can be difficult to know what patients can actually handle the anticoagulation or not. I think that's a really tough question in the ICU. It's a risk of stroke versus risk of hemorrhage discussion, which is really tough in our patient population. Yeah. I, and I feel like a lot of our patients are at pretty high risk of hemorrhage. I think that's true. And probably like most of the things that we are going to talk about in any podcast ever, it needs to be evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis. What can we do to do that. So you can still use the CHADS2 VASC score that you see cardiology using. We'll link to a calculator in our show notes. Now, all of the data on when to start anticoagulation for patients with AFib comes from the outpatient world, but in that world, many of them will start anticoagulation when the CHADS2 VASC score is greater than two for males or greater than three for females, but I'm certain there are exceptions to that rule as well. 
There's only one retrospective observational study in ICU patients without clear guidance. There is some suggestion amongst intensivists, perhaps that we pick an even higher chas 2 vas score because of our patient's risk of hemorrhage. Something like a score of four or even greater definitely would get anticoagulation. That two to three to four range is pretty tough to know. For those of you who can't instantly recall, like myself, what's on a chas 2 vas score, it's a mix of chronic comorbidities, things like diabetes, heart failure, stroke, etc. Again, we'll link it in the show notes. The one thing that I do want to comment on is when you're seeing a patient in the ICU and trying to make a determination on whether you should initiate anticoagulation or not, trying to weigh bleeding versus clotting, keep in mind that you're going to calculate a chas 2 vasque score and it's going to spit out a number to you, like 7.2%. But keep in mind, this is 7.2% per 365 days per one year. So if you're thinking that a patient has a GI bleed and you want to hold their anticoagulation, if you divide that 7.2% by 365 and you hold their anticoagulation for five days, you really only carry a 0.1% risk of stroke in that five-day period because math. So it just changes the conversation when you think about holding anticoagulation for a short duration of time as opposed to years and years and years. 0.1 sounds way better than 7.2. Now let's get into the classic cardiology Not debate. Really a debate anymore. And that's rate control versus rhythm control. So the reason Jeremy's being rude over here is I'm uh, not that rude. So rude. It was the interruption was written in the script for everybody who's judging me. He's lying. You know he, he's lying. He made it up. <laughs> so in 2002, in one journal on one day, two awesome AFib papers dropped. That's right. That's the Affirm and Race trials. Both looked at this classic rate control versus rhythm control issue. Now, remember, just like all these studies, this was on stable outpatient atrial fibrillation patients, not ICU patients. Definitely not my ICU population. Nope, but they found in greater than 4,000 patients that there was no difference in survival of rate control versus rhythm control. Rate control was favored in regards to hospitalizations and other adverse events. Just a comment for the listeners out there, rate control meaning using medications to slow things down a little bit, whereas rhythm control referring to converting them out of atrial fibrillation and into sinus rhythm. Since that time, the cardiology world has been all about rate control, stating in the American Heart Association guidelines that an initial Initial rate control strategy is reasonable in most patients. And if you still need more proof, we will link an ED-specific study for you stating that calcium channel blockers had faster rate control, better symptom control, and decreased length of stay in the hospital when compared to digoxin or amio. Interesting. So the original uh, throw them on amio and call it a day in the intro that we started is maybe a little bit inaccurate. Is that my voice you just did? Yeah. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> so yeah, it's looking like this decision is a little more nuanced than we thought. ICU patients are definitely not stable outpatients, though. So let's hold off on just blanket recommending rate control until we hear the rest of the story. Fair enough. But there's one final rate control question I wanted to ask. If we are choosing rate control and not rhythm control, what is our target heart rate? Less than 80, less than 100, less than 110? I've heard lots of numbers. You've probably heard lots of numbers because of the initial studies in outpatient atrial fibrillation looked at getting the heart rate to less than 80. But in 2010, the RACE2 trial, you know I love my trial names. That's a pretty good one. RACE1, RACE2. RACE2 where? RACE2 wherever you want. (laughs) More lenient heart rate control. (laughs) 
But it looked at the heart rate of less than 80, which the original trials did, versus less than 110. And it found no difference making 110 non-inferior to 80. And there was findings suggestive of fewer complications in that study for your more lenient less than 110 population. And I would just probably assume that a heart rate goal of 110 as compared to 80 just requires less medications. And so the complications being from less side effects, if I, if I had to guess. Absolutely. Let's talk about rhythm control in the ICU next. Now, rate control data, as we said, this is all in a stable outpatient population. And this has caused some people to move to rhythm control in the inpatient setting. And I guess that you would be validated in doing that given the lack of data in our patient population. But lack of data for rate control in our people is not necessarily directly supportive for moving straight to rhythm control. So does that mean that we can do either? Well, let's try to make a case that rhythm control might be better. Okay. What about stroke versus hemorrhage risk? We started talking about this earlier, but what's the risk in all our ICU patients? NAFC, or new onset AFib in the critically ill, it's associated with a 2% risk of ischemic stroke among patients who were studied who had severe sepsis. So 2% is pretty low. What's the risk of hemorrhage? When we tried to look that up, it's somewhere between 9 and 45%. According to a study by Labby in 2015, they suggested maybe we only anticoagulate the highest risk patients in the ICU. Now, is this the assumption that they are following the anticoagulation guidelines of atrial fibrillation for greater than 48 hours start anticoagulation? Correct. They're not just directly bleeding from being an AFib. Correct. Okay. Something else that's different about our patients in the inpatient setting. Our patients who have AFib, we have the unique ability to make sure that we achieve definitive rhythm control, meaning they're monitored on tele continuously, as opposed to in the outpatient setting, you kind of don't know you're going by symptoms. Another potential point for rhythm control in the ICU is, can we reduce the risk of future AFib? We need to be careful. Like There's this whole saying, right? AFib begets AFib. Right. So perhaps we get definitive rhythm control and that's no longer an issue. So at the end of the rate versus rhythm discussion, do we have an answer to give the people? No, we don't. Aren't you happy you're listening to this episode? <laughs> Unfortunately, you're going to have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis. You are justified by the data to use rate control methods based on the plethora of cardiology data that we have. But you'd also be just as justified in saying those studies weren't done in my patient population, so I'm going to use rhythm control for the reasons we just mentioned. And the other thing that's really frustrating is that a lot of patients will just spontaneously convert, even if you just use a rate control strategy. One thing that I do want to comment on is that in many of our patients who are hypotensive, the agents that you would classically use to rate control a patient with AFib you can't. You can't start a beta blocker in that severe sepsis patient who's got a borderline blood pressure all the time. And so sometimes you're kind of forced into choosing a rhythm control strategy or, or just waiting for the initial insult to go away. Well, I think that's an interesting question. You almost could use some of the traditional rate control medications if you were confident their hypotension was due to atrial fibrillation. Fair point. But if the hypertension is due to sepsis, then you're absolutely right. Adding a new beta blocker or long-acting calcium channel blocker to this scenario is bad news. Can we talk about ablations really quick? Do we need to be referring all of our ICU patients with AFib to electrophysiology to consider an ablation? There's a few ablation, like actually big publications over the past couple of years. <clears throat> That's a Castle AF and Cabana to you. 
Wow. Did anybody else hear how pretentious that sounded? Can we short summary those? Sure, I'll give that a try. So radio frequency ablation, when used in patients with reduced ejection fraction heart failure, so HFREF, resulted in less death and fewer heart failure admissions than medical therapy alone. That was big news in the cardiology world, but Castle AF was a pretty small study. So Cabana came out not shortly after and looked at more patients uh, and not just heart failure patients. It was a more all-comer trial and they found no significant improvement in death or other endpoints. Maybe this is just the millennial in me, but whenever I write atrial fibrillation in the chart and I see it abbreviated AF, like somebody writes rapid AF, I laugh to myself. Do you know why? It's so castle AF. (laughs) It's castle AF. (laughs) Slow AF, controlled AF. If you don't know, then you don't know. We got that AFib controlled AF. <laughs> Our final thought on ablation. If you're taking care of a patient who has atrial fibrillation and heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, you should consider talking with your EP or cardiology colleagues at your center so they can evaluate them on a case-by-case basis for this radiofrequency ablation. Let's move on now to reviewing the most common rate control drugs. I actually really love Cardizem. So Cardizem is a non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker. It is the most common choice for atrial fibrillation in the ICU in the United States. It's a class 4 antiarrhythmic. Now, what are the issues with using it? It has about a 30% discontinuation rate due to hypotension. And also, with both calcium channel blockers and beta blockers, caution and heart failure... In studies, it has achieved faster rate control than metoprolol, but it does cause more hypotension. So how do you dose it? It's 0.25 milligrams per kg over two minutes. So you just give 20 milligram IV push over two minutes, followed by an infusion rate, five milligrams an hour up to a maximum of 15 milligrams an hour. Why don't we move on and talk about our beta blockers? And I want to take my first one, my favorite one, which is Esmolol. I think Esmolol is a solid drug, and it's probably relatively underutilized in our own personal intensive care unit, brand name Breviblock. So this is Esmolol. Like most of the beta blockers, this is a class 2 antiarrhythmic, and Esmolol specifically is known as being very fast-acting and having a short half-life, meaning fast-on, fast-off. Usually we're infusing somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 mics per kg per minute up to a maximum of 300 mics per kg per minute. And you can also bolus this. If you'd like to bolus dose Esmolol, it's 1,000 mics per kg over 30 seconds for rapid control, or you could cut that in half and do 500 mics per kg over one minute for more gradual control. But this is a very cardio-selective medication, so you tend to get a lot of the decreased chronotropy or decreased heart rate, but not a lot of the hypotension. I'll take on metoprolol. When talking about metoprolol in the ICU, we usually talk about the IV form, which comes in 2.5 milligram or 5 milligram doses. It's pushed over two minutes. This can be repeated every five minutes for a max dose of 15 milligrams. But should we be using it? My issue with metoprolol is it's short half-life. And there's a lack of infusion backing it, like similar drugs such as esmolol, cardizem, and amiodarone. We anecdotally see patients go back into AFib pretty quickly, especially when the AFib is caused by things like sepsis. It's definitely a band-aid choice, and there are better rate control agents like cardizem and esmolol. Do you all have any personal opinions about mixing calcium channel blockers and beta blockers? Like, let's say somebody before you chose to push a bunch of uh, metoprolol, but you're privy to cardizem. 
do you have a problem with mixing and matching? Because anecdotally for me, I've seen a lot more hypotension and bradycardia with, with mixing those up. I guess if you allow enough time to pass. I have as well. So I typically stay away from it. Which is actually another great reason why metoprolol may be not your best choice here because you do one or two pushes all of a sudden, the patient's still on AFib. You got to either go all in with more beta blocker, maybe yeah, switch straight to, to Esmolol. Yeah, or change agents to calcium channel blocker and get more hypotension. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, what about Dig? Digoxin, it's not first line. You'll see some of our cardiology colleagues use it, but it's got a slower onset of action. It's uh, it's more of a staple kind of second or third line drug. And for me, I'm really using Dig in patients that are already on Dig. It's cool, especially for patients who have heart failure, because it is to some degree a positive inotrope, especially in these patients where you shouldn't be using calcium channel blockers and sometimes not beta blockers. The nice thing about Dig is that you can combine it with beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. So if you're really not getting control, it's something that you can consider. You need to be careful in patients who have renal failure though. The dose for DIG is somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 mics or 500 mics up front. And then you're going to go ahead and repeat the dose of 250 mics every six hours. And your maximum dose is 1.5 milligrams over a 24 hour period. One thing to be careful of if you're going to be starting digoxin on a patient who is already initiated on amiodarone, which we're going to talk about in a moment, amiodarone and dig together can potentiate digoxin toxicity, which you really don't want to do. So let's go there and talk about amiodarone next. So it's a class three antiarrhythmic. It's our most hemodynamically stable agent we've talked about so far. How you dose it is 150 milligram bolus up front, followed by an infusion of one milligram a minute for six hours, and then 0.5 milligrams a minute for 18 hours. Now, if you need to reload that bolus, you can every roughly 45 to 60 minutes. And out of the IC literature that I've seen, about three amiodarone loads is probably a good stopping point. Now, is amiodarone going to achieve rhythm control really quickly? Actually, usually not. It can be pretty slow to actually get that conversion back to normal sinus rhythm. It can take, in some studies, up to eight hours. And don't forget it has many issues that sometimes I think we may take a little too lightly in the ICU. Some of those are liver disease. It can cause fatal hepatotoxicity. As pulmonary critical care, we know it definitely causes pulmonary toxicity, uh, things such as amiodarone-associated ILD and hypersensitivity pneumonitis. Now, it's still in all your ACLS protocols, which is not the focus of this episode, but just to remind you, it's useful in ACLS for ventricular arrhythmias, such as VTAC and VFib, and also for non-sustained VTAC patients. A less commonly used antiarrhythmic is procainamide. It's a class 1A antiarrhythmic, and it does have a higher risk of hypotension relative to amio. We'll include the loading doses in the show notes, but because this is less commonly used, we're not really going to dive into it in the show. Now, really quickly, I'd like to talk about lidocaine. It's an antiarrhythmic, but it has no role in AFib. It's a VFib VTAC alternative to amio in the ACLS guidelines, but no role in AFib. It's used in hemodynamically stable monomorphic VTAC. Let's do magnesium real quick. So of all the medications we just talked about, magnesium is actually the safest medication in atrial fibrillation. And you should automatically just give two to four grams of magnesium. This is very unlikely to cause harm, although it can cause a wee bit, and yes, I did say wee bit, of vasodilation. How many millimeters of mercury drop in uh, blood pressure is that? That's a, that's a wee bit. A wee bit yeah. drop? It's a wee bit. Mm -hmm. Got it. Look it up. It's a real thing. 
So, and you don't need to wait to see what your magnesium level is to go ahead and give this. If you have a patient who goes into AFib RVR, it's very safe to give in heart disease. Now, if you're giving it longer term, there is some risk of pulmonary toxicity or liver toxicity. In the ICU, it's generally not an issue. So what are you guys going to do? Next patient, you got AFib RVR, rates 140. Honestly, I'm probably going to load hours. Yeah. You're so lazy. <laughs> no... I'm just kidding. It, it, I am going to assess the patient. I'll do my first pass. You know, the classic ICU answer. ABCs. I want to know what the hemodynamics are. I do want to know what their electrolytes are. I do want to know how long they've been in this rhythm and what their controlled rhythm looks like. I want to know what else is going on with the patient. Yes, I'm going to do my assessment. I think honestly, after looking through some of the data for this episode, I am more comfortable using some of these rate control agents. I think in our medical ICU population, we probably could be using rate control a lot more often and probably jump to amio in situations where we don't actually have to. Maybe the other thing to think about is you're trading the risk of hypotension in your beta blocker and calcium channel blocker for a risk of a lot of organ toxicity in amiodarone. Do we need to be consulting our cardiology colleagues more frequently for a consideration of TEE and cardioversion, considering that AFib begets more AFib? That's a great question. If you're in a hospital that has great cardiology support, then I think that's perfectly reasonable. Uh, especially if they're a patient either with uh, persistent AFib, chronic AFib, or you're, they, they kind of show up with AFib and you're not sure how long they've had it, that's a great patient to go ahead and consult them on. What's their underlying comorbidities? Do they have a risk of structural heart disease? Are they obese, patient with sleep apnea that's got peripheral edema? Yeah, they don't have a diagnosis of heart failure, but they're, they look like a metabolic patient. That's a pretty good patient to go ahead and call cardiology for. All right, let's wrap this up. Atrial fibrillation is common, especially in our intensive care population. And unfortunately, much of the data on its management has been done in the outpatient setting. Like most things ICU, we're in a little bit of the Wild West. It could be seen in patients without a history of AFib due to things like critical illness. So first up, we want to ask ourselves, is this patient stable or unstable? If they're unstable, we want to start going down the synchronized cardioversion route. Keeping in mind that assessing stability is really difficult. Sometimes you have to make a clinical decision on how unstable you want a patient to lay there while you consider rhythm controlling them versus just skipping straight to electrical cardioversion. While you're in the process of determining if they are unstable or not, you can go ahead and think about why they have AFib and what might be causing it. But yo, if they're actually unstable and crashing and burning, don't spend all your time thinking about why. Spend your time trying to think about how you can cardiovert them and save their life. Be familiar with the rate versus rhythm control debate and be able to choose for your individual patient. Understand that in the ICU, there's not really a clear answer. And then finally, for those of you listening at home, remember some of the main and common medications that we've discussed on this episode. I think at the end of the day, it's going to be easiest for you to go ahead and visit the show notes, kind of make your own repository of which medications you're going to pull out of your back pocket for these patients who have AFib and need help. So without further ado, that's AFib in a nutshell. Hope you enjoyed it. Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading. Keep reading.